Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Mailbag. Nothing personal word of the day. It's a mailbag episode. That is when you get on your Apple podcast app. You go to the Nothing Personal with David Sampson page. You do five stars, which is a rate. Then you write a review. And in a review, ask a question. And these mailbag episodes may contain your question. Or you can get to me at Twitter, David P. Sampson, Instagram, David P. Sampson. Just find me. And if the question's good, topical, interesting, and it passes through the COCA test, which is not easy, then we will get to it. We have so much to get through. I don't think we're going to be able to do it in one episode, COCA, but let's see what happens here. I'm just going to start. Number one, mailbag. Question for a future mailbag. Well, here it is. What have you found to be the best interview questions hiring people? I manage about nine to 10 folks and have been interviewing a lot lately, and it is challenging weeding through the BS. That's what we do here at Nothing Personal, by the way. Since you are so direct, I figure you may have a few favorite questions to ask. Thanks. No, no, thank you. All right, interviewing. That is a skill. It's a skill both for the interviewer and the interviewee. I'm asked very often about the interviewee, not so often about being the interviewer. So I wanted to touch on that. How do you find a date? Sounds crazy, right? There's these new shows, Love is Blind, 90 Second Fiance, or is it 90 Minute Fiance? All these TV shows, all these apps where you're swiping right, you're swiping left, you're swiping up the middle. How do you find someone who can be your companion? How do you find someone who you can work with? How do you find someone who can work for you, with you, below you, above you, next to you? How do you do it when you know the interviewee has put on a tie, has put on his best jacket, found some nice clothes, even potentially ironed them, you have a resume in front of you, it was given to you by your human resources department, or it was someone who submitted an application online. You're not positive whether anything on the resume is actually accurate. How do you cut through all of that and make your hiring decision? Is it through the questions? Well, I've got a surprise. As an interviewer, you know whether you're gonna hire that person in the first two to three minutes of the interview. The rest is confirmation bias. Think about that. Let's only talk about it from the standpoint of the interviewer because that was the question. The person walks in your office. They sit down. What's the lead? Shake hands, time of COVID, maybe a fist bump. Maybe you're looking to see whether the person extends his, her, or their hand. 
or just the fist or the elbow or a bow. Everything has meaning. Everything an interviewee does, you need to be looking at. All of the things they are doing when they're not talking. I'm looking at eye contact. I'm looking at leg movement. I'm looking at chair position. Does someone sit back? Does someone sit up? Are they crossing their legs? Are their legs flat on the floor? Are their shoes tied? Do their clothes match? What is the first words out of their mouth? Nice to meet you. Thank you for the opportunity. How long is the small talk? As an interviewer, I don't have time for small talk. I get right into it and I lead with the single most important question. Because you know, after two to three minutes, my decision will be made and I spend the last 17 minutes saying you're right about the decision you made in the first two to three minutes. First question, what is it that makes you think you can do this job? Now, why is that a question that I would ask? Well, you've heard me say on nothing personal, the reason why you hire someone is so they can do your job for you and give you the credit for having done it. So I'm looking for someone who's willing to subjugate their ego. I'm looking for someone who's driven, who can understand what has been done, what needs to be done, and different ways to do it in the future. Because if I didn't have new things to do, I would not be interviewing. Now, some people would say, often interviews are just to replace a person who left. They want things done exactly the way they've always been, so they're looking for someone who fits in right on the assembly line. Is that a job you really want? And if you're interviewing for a job like that, then the first thing you're saying when you're asked, how can you do your job? What is it about your experience that will make you do your job? Will you be able to do this job? It actually doesn't matter if it's an assembly line job or an executive position because you then are looking for an answer from the person that goes right into it. If you're the interviewee, get right into it. As the interviewer, I am looking immediately to see what the first sentence is in answering that question. What's the perfect first sentence? Everything I've learned up to this point has put me in a position to be in this chair today. From the job description that I read, I am confident that my skill set will enable me to do everything you need and that which I don't know how to do, I will be able to learn very quickly because of the following six skills I have. That would be the ideal answer. Some people answer it with a stumble and a fumble. Interviewers, make sure you're paying attention. No us, uh, um, like, no likes. Well, I like, think I like, can do that like, totally for sure. You want crisp sentences, so make your questions crisp. So then the person answers that question, and you have no choice to move on to the next question. Next question. You're going to meet a lot of people who are going to tell you the second question in an interview is supposed to be, where do you see yourself in five years? Horse hockey. Don't ask that question because you don't want to know the answer. 
because anyone who answers where they want to be in five years has no idea where they want to be in five minutes. There's no way to know where you want to be. It's all a figment, a dream, a thought. It's some sort of construct that's given to you by media, by TV, by friends, by family, all people who don't know your situation or what you are doing or what you want to do. So don't ask someone, what do you want to be doing in five years? Ask them question number two. With what you know about our company, what is it you think we could do better? Well, that's a loaded question, isn't it? Because if you answer with a laundry list like Jim Carrey, all of a sudden the interviewer is going to say, wow, this person doesn't like our company. This person thinks everything I do is wrong. Who does this person think they are? So you have to answer that question carefully when you're an interviewee, but as an interviewer, you're looking for three things. When you're asked the question, what do you think can be done better in this company? Give three things, but give solutions as well. As I'm interviewing people, I'm looking for ideas. Do you remember I told you what we do when we interview managers? when we know we're not gonna hire the person we're interviewing and we're doing it both to satisfy the SELIG rule, but also we're trying to get information. When you are looking at switching jobs, maybe in the same industry, the person you're interviewing with knows what your background is and they're trying to get information from you. So give them some information, not too much, just enough so that they know that you know what this company's all about and that you have the initiative to make changes within the construct of how the company works. Don't start off your first interview by saying, here's the 10 things that are wrong, and here's the following things, and if you don't do them, then you're gonna have a problem. Remember I told you the story of how I didn't get the Knicks job as president of the Knicks when they said, what would you do to make things better? And I said, fire Isaiah Thomas? Well, that was not the best answer. Because if you don't know for sure what the job is or what the relationship is of the interviewer, you better be careful with how you phrase what you would do to make things better. What I wish I could do now, given social media, where you can do all sorts of research and find out who's got relationships with who, who's been in the business for how long, what they do. It used to be in the good old days, you had to go through publicly uh, disseminated reports I just dropped a, uh, did you hear that, Coca? Do you want to wipe that? I don't think you need to. It happens, right? If you're going to talk straight to a studio audience of zero, well, Radar's teddy bear is about it. Oh, there's a Yale Bulldog now, too. But that's it. There's no one else here. So occasionally there's going to be a, uh, <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah, wipe that out, Coca. Where were we? What can you do better? So you're going to give three things. You're going to do the research that's available to you. And the three things are not going to be things that are totally wrong with the company. It's going to be things that are good with the company, but you have a way to make better because of the job you are interviewing for. As an interviewer, you're looking for those answers to relate to the business silo that you are interviewing for. So for example, when I'm interviewing someone to be in ticket sales and I say, what will you do to make things better in the company? And they say, I would trade your pitcher. That's not really the answer I'm looking for. It may be true, but that's not going to get you the job. So they go through the list of three things. If they give you 10 things, 
then you know you were right. You're not hiring the person. If they give you no things, then you know, hey, I don't need this person. You go through the rest of the interview. If they give you three interesting things, then question three. By the way, if the answer is you're not hiring the person, then you can just BS the rest of the interview. It doesn't matter what the rest of the questions are. You can ask what they think the weather's going to be like and who they had in the Super Bowl yesterday, right? Doesn't matter. Okay. Now I have your list. Thank you. What resources do you need to make those things better? Question number three. That will be a very telling question because then it gives you an idea whether or not the interviewee is actually paying attention, whether or not the interviewee has pie-in-the-sky ideas, things that can never happen. Well, I think the stadium in Miami should be in Fort Lauderdale. Well, I appreciate that. That may make sales better. But how exactly is that going to work? Are we going to abandon Lone Marlins Park? So the answer has to be something that is actually doable. So as the interviewer, you are looking for actual actionable actions, things that can actually be done. So the third question is, what will you do and what do you need to make things better? Okay. Fourth question, if you have gotten through the first three, if after the first three, you're told, hey, move the ballpark, then you go back to the left side, which is not hiring. Now, of course, that may be counter to what I said, which is the rest is confirmation bias once you've heard the first answer or the second answer, but don't kid yourself. There's always a third rail when there's an interview. There's always something. So for example, if you're 20 minutes into a 25 minute interview and you are ready to make the hire and the person you're interviewing sneezes and doesn't cover his mouth, you're not getting the job. If the person all of a sudden does something like coughs or sneezes into their actual hand and then extends their hand to shake it or does something like has their phone not on vibrate and says, oh God, I forgot to put it on vibrate. Everybody has their phone on vibrate all the time or should. So there are third rail things that could happen, but let's pretend you get through the gauntlet, you're past three and you get to four. The fourth question, what experience did you have in your last job that if you had a chance to do it over, you would, and what would you change? The reason I ask that as my fourth question is I want the person to know that not everything comes up roses when you're working inside a company, that often there's a stench of failure, even for people who've lost their taste and smell. And the question is, what has that person learned about failure of a project, failure of an idea, failure of an execution? And that lesson, how that can be applied to future projects, future ideas. So I want to know from someone when I'm interviewing them, what they can make better, what they need to make it better, and then what they do when things don't go right. You can tell most about a person in a time of crisis. I've told you my airplane story with flight attendants. All they ever ask, all I ever ask of flight attendants during turbulence is just to look calm. Don't run up and down the aisle like a chicken without a head because I'm looking to you. Because if you're panicking, I'm panicking. As the president of a team, I thought about that every day. It's like in law. When you are a litigator and you make an objection, remember that scene in A Few Good Men? I object! Overruled. I really object. I object again. I significantly object. All of a sudden, everyone's looking around like, why are you objecting? What's going on here? 
That's what panic is. You don't ever want to panic. So when you're interviewing someone, you are looking to see how they will act in a crisis. I want to conclude this by saying one nugget when you are the interviewer. You're not going to get all of them right. You're going to make hires. I didn't get every hire right. There were several hires, scores of hires. When you make 100 hires, if you get 80% right, you are the most successful interviewer of all time because there is no way ever to know somebody until you live with them. There's no way to know exactly what they're going to be able to do until you watch them do it. There's no way to ever really know what people are going to do in a crisis until you have a crisis. And there is no crisis during the interview process. There is a, what's the word, a symbolized crisis? A, what's the word when, you, when it's fake and it's, uh, oh, Coca, come on. What is that word right now when you make something up and it's a, it's a simulation? Thank you, Coca. All you can do is simulate crisis and then you simulate reaction, but you don't really know. So don't get too hard on yourself when you're interviewing people. Don't expect 100% success. And my last key piece of advice is learn quickly how to cut the cord when you've made a mistake. Because there's nothing worse than a bad investment than adding money. Good money after bad is the worst thing you could ever do. So putting more time, more energy, more investment into a person when you know that person is not working out because you're doubling down because you don't want to have been wrong, that just digs you deeper into a pile. Hey, David. Hello. Love the show. Thank you. Just wanted to ask if you had any tips for negotiating salaries. I just signed my first salaried position offer and was fortunate to have a mentor within the company tell me to ask for more money. I'm sure you have great tips and experiences to share regarding this often awkward situation. I'll hang up and listen. Well, thank you for asking that. That's a great question. Uh, that is the most common thing that I am asked on the speaking circuit and by kids of friends of mine or people who just contact me out of the blue. How do I negotiate my salary? Do I just say yes because I'm so happy to be here? So let me give you the bottom line. The answer is you never accept what is offered to you without having said the following sentence. I accept your offer, but I believe I deserve more and I will prove that to you so that next year you will have no choice but to pay me what I think I should be being paid right now. If you deliver that line, even if you are afraid to negotiate, even if someone says to you, well, you're slotted in. First year salespeople make $18,000 plus commission. First year marketing people, you're gonna be at $46,000. Oh, you're a first year teacher? Oh, you're at $42,000. Oh, you're coming in in player development? No problem, as an intern, you make 800 bucks a week. Whatever the case is, what interviewers do when they're giving you the, your salary, they tell you what their salary is gonna be. That's it. I always loved it when people would say to me, I want more money. When I would do end of year reviews and we would do employment reviews where we would have to review employees up and down the chain. Anybody who's satisfied with their salary or satisfied with their bonus is not somebody I want to work for me. Anybody who doesn't want my job is not someone I wanna work for me. 
I want to be surrounded by people who are so hungry that you can feed them 20-ounce ribeyes every hour on the hour, and they leave the office and go straight to McDonald's because they're not stuffed. Don't ever be satisfied. Now, how do you know how much money you deserve to make? Again, do the research. It is very easy these days to find out what people are making. It's easy to find out within a company what people are making. It is absolutely verboten to talk money with people you work with. That is the line that everybody says. Don't talk about it. We expect as a CEO and president that no one's going to talk because then that enables us and human resources to be the only people who know what everybody's making. But as employees, it's okay to talk about it. And it's okay to find someone and say, hey, what was your bonus this year? Now, do you lie when someone asks you that question? Are you embarrassed? Is your bonus too small? Are you embarrassed because you're not making as much money as you think the other person's making? Do you overinflate what you're making to look cool to the person you're working with? Well, how is that helpful to you? Because anything you're doing, that means the other person's doing it too. So don't lie. It's okay to tell people what you make. And it's okay to tell people that you want to make more. And it's okay to tell people that you want to know what they want to make because you think that you're not getting paid fairly. Or you want to make sure they're getting paid fairly. Because I promise you this, that your salary and the salary of the person you're talking to is not the difference in whether your company is going to go under or not. It's not the difference in whether your company is going to be profitable or not. We count on employees not being smart enough to have these uncomfortable conversations. But it's okay to have them. It's smart to have them. So when you're negotiating salaries, you go in knowing what your salary could be, should be, would be, given your experience, given the job, and given the comparables. Think about baseball arbitration for a moment. When you're in the room with your own player, He's got his agent and a bunch of lawyers. You've got your lawyers and members of the commissioner's office. You've got three arbitrators at the front of the table. The entire arbitration is all about comparables. That person did this and makes that. I did this. I got to make that. That is why knowing what other people make in baseball, it's easy because everybody knows what everybody makes on the field. But if you're in an industry or in a job where you don't know what anybody makes, your first job is to learn what people make around you, above you, and below you. The more information you have, the better you will be able to negotiate. What is the rule that I've always said about negotiating? You've got to know where you are and where you're going. And you've got to draw out the path on how you're going to get there. And you can't let anyone make you stray from that path and getting to that finish line. So the number one most important thing is to know where you're starting from. If you're going into a job and you want to make $100,000 and everybody who does what you do makes $40,000, you are not going to make $100,000. The question is, can you make 45? Can you make 50 with the chance to make 65? Can you get closer to your number? Are you going into a job where you know that everybody's making 100 and they're offering you a starting salary of 70? What do you do? You say, listen, I appreciate that you're sliding me in at 70, but I know very well that people make six figures doing this work, and I assure you that the reason I'm being interviewed today, the reason that I'm even talking to you about salary today is that you know that I can help this company. 
you know that my skill set is meant for this position. Or I've been here for three years. I have shown you exactly what I've done to be added to this company. I can show you the following five examples where I've made a significant monetary difference to the bottom line of this company with the work I've done, the savings I have made, the profit I have generated, the revenue I've generated, the income I've generated. Choose whatever economic word you want, but what you're doing is you are showing the person who you are negotiating with that you've got information, that you've got comparables. So the way to do it at the end of the day, have comparables. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Okay. David, continue to love the podcast. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I watch it on YouTube every day. By the way, uh, YouTube's having more and more commercials, Coke. Have you noticed that? That's really good for Viacom CBS. But I'm sorry. That's really good for Paramount, but that can get frustrating. That said, to everyone who's on the Nothing Personal with YouTube, nothing. Three, six, nine. For everybody who's on the Nothing Personal with David Sampson YouTube channel, I appreciate that. Please hit subscribe. Our subscribers number is lower than it needs to be. So please, let's keep Nothing Personal going. I watch it on YouTube every day. Thank you. When confronted with a complex problem, did you have any specific methods or theories about how to solve the problem? Any techniques or best practices? I love that question. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. So the answer is, I've been confronted with complex problems. We can talk about the most complex, which is selling a team, buying a team, building a ballpark, getting public financing, negotiating contracts with players, making trades with other teams, figuring out how to sell more tickets, bring in more revenue. Every problem that I dealt with had some degree of complexity. Complexity is directly correlated to reward. The harder the problem, the more important the problem, the bigger the success, the more money to be made. So what's the first thing you have to do when you are trying to solve that problem? What do you think I'm going to say? You ready? You got to know what the answer is first. The answer is where you need to be. So just take building a ballpark. Well, I know I need to get a ballpark. Okay, that's not enough. That can't be the end goal because how will I get from I haven't started to a ballpark? 
My God, there's 10,000 steps in between. I have to figure out financing. I have to figure out what it's going to look like. I need an architect. Then I need someone to build the damn thing. Then I need someone to figure out what we're going to put in it. We need someone to do furniture, fixtures. It's overwhelming. I don't even know where to start. How many of you, when confronted with a situation, say this? I got so much to do, I don't even know where to begin. People who succeed count on people who say that to fail. Because no one knows where to begin, which is why you need your endpoint, you need your start point, and then you need your list. My famous list of short, mid, and long-term issues. Short, mid, long-term goals. I've talked about that on previous episodes. I have them with me at all times. Things I have to get done today, things I have to get done soon, and things I have to get done eventually. And eventually, the list from eventually becomes soon, and eventually soon becomes now. But when you've got a problem, you have to make that same sort of list. Because when you first know that you need a new ballpark, guess what you don't need to worry about? Who's going to be the opening day pitcher when the ballpark opens? You don't need to worry about what color the seats are going to be. You don't need to worry about what's going to be hanging on the wall once the walls are built. What's the first thing you have to do? You need to get money. So then I have separate pieces of paper. Each piece of paper has a step on the way from the start point to the end point. Then I make sure to arrange the pieces of paper into short, mid, and long term. Then on that piece of paper, I have what the goal is for that individual task. Do you see what I'm doing? I'm breaking it down into bite-sized pieces. I want you to picture when you are given a huge, let's talk about that big ribeye that you go to Burn Steakhouse and get a 30-ounce steak or a 60-ounce filet, whatever the case may be. How, how is that going to fit in my stomach? I, where do I start eating? Well, the first thing you do is, the problem is, you get a fork. Solution. Knife. Start cutting. You cut it into bite-sized pieces. Sometimes you cut it in half. It looks much less overwhelming when you've cut it in half, doesn't it? Then you may even do an extra cut to get it into quarters and you still haven't eaten yet. Keep in mind you haven't started getting to the end, but you've changed the way the final product looks by putting it into smaller bite-sized pieces. So I've got pieces of paper. They've got where I need to go, how I'm going to get there. Next thing when you're dealing with a complex problem, who is going to help me eat this steak. Who's going to help me get to the end of each piece of paper? Because you need a team of people. Some of them you'll do yourself. Others you will not have any hand in, but other people will be assigned to do it. So you have to make sure as you're looking at every piece of paper that you have not put the same name on every piece of paper to the point where it is impossible for that person to do all of those tasks. Because then you are setting yourself up for absolute 100% failure. Okay, so now we've got the piece of paper. We've got where we're trying to get to. We've broken it down. We know who's going to help us get there. Next thing you need on the piece of paper, what needs to be done by that person to get to the end of that piece of paper? And how does that piece of paper fit with the next piece of paper? It's like a jigsaw puzzle.
you have to make sure that on your piece of paper, individually, you have all the ingredients necessary. It's sort of like baking in a way. Yeah, I really keep doing food analogies, which is strange because I still don't have taste and smell. I don't know why everything's about food when I shouldn't care about food at all, but it just reminds me everything becomes sort of a food analogy. But when you're doing something in a bite-sized piece, then you've got your sauces. Maybe you add some salt, you add some pepper. Maybe you have some side dishes as well, and you split those up to make sure you've allocated enough that you can do bite of the steak, then a fry. You calculate the number of fries you have, the number of bites of steak you have, because you don't want to run out of fries too early, because then you've got the last 10 pieces of steak and no fries to go with it. You don't want to use up all the ketchup unless you can get more, but sometimes you can't get more if you use it all up or the steak sauce. Then what? Then you've had heaven for the first half, and then the second half is dry, plain, and you're in trouble. So the ingredients on each piece of paper in order to achieve the goal of that piece of paper is critical. You with me, Coca? Ingredients. What do I need to give the person who's on that piece of paper who's going to accomplish that goal? So are you seeing now that everything is getting broken down from something so large that there's virtually no chance that it's going to be successful? Now I look at a single piece of paper and say, I can get that done today. I look at what I have to get done. I look at who's doing it. Well, I've got three weeks to do that. That's about a two-week situation. I'm going to keep that aside. Let them do what they have to do. I'm going to revisit that after six days, knowing I've got eight days left. I always check on projects before the 50% mark. You don't want to check on a 14-day project at seven days because then if it's not going well, you say, God damn, we're in the second half of this. We may not have time to actually do it right. Therefore, we're going to cut corners, and then all of a sudden, you've got a leaky roof. But by checking before 50% or day six of a 14-day project, you're able to pivot, and if it's not going well, you've got the time, at least from my standpoint, to get it done right. Because what is worse than a complex problem? It's a complex problem that you solve incorrectly. It's always easier to solve the problem correctly first than to try to double back and correct your mistakes. Now, correcting mistakes that are done during the process and making sure the final product is right, that's normal. That's getting from point A to point B, knowing that it's never going to be a straight line, knowing you're going to have to zigzag, you're going to have to make adjustments, baseball, life, business, it's a game of adjustments, but you always know you started at A and you've got to find a way to get to B. But if you finish your project, you finish a piece of paper and you realize that you're not at B at all, you ended up in a totally different place. That will have a ripple effect to everything else that you are doing. And if you continue to go based on incorrect information or an incorrect conclusion to a problem that you had, and then you are using that information to inform you on further and future decisions, they're all going to be wrong too. It's like in math. Have you ever done a math problem back before calculators when you actually had to do math? And you go through the whole problem. It's a very complicated calculus problem. And you just can't get the right answer. And you keep checking and everything looks right. Every process you did, everything was on point. And then you realize in the first step, you had 509 minus 7 equals 501. Oh my God. I did all the complicated stuff correctly. 
but the basis of everything I did was wrong because I did the easiest thing incorrectly. That's why when you have a problem and you have an incorrect solution, you're totally screwed. So you better make sure you get it right the first time. So when I'm confronted with a complex problem, to sum it up for you, it's sort of simple. Make it simple. Keep it simple. Okay. Happy holidays, sir. Okay. President's Day, maybe? Decided to use Christmas to finally watch Whiplash, which I've played in jazz bands for years, though none at that level, and really loved the film. That's the film where J.K. Simmons won the Academy Award. That was with Miles Teller, an incredible movie. I'm almost positive, Coca, that we reviewed that on an early nothing personal, but it could have been Levitard. I don't know. So I want to ask, what are your top five films about music? Not necessarily musicals, films where music is the subject of the film. Thank you, as always. All right, top five. Now, I did not do, I made it sort of a combination of musicals. These are my top five. I'm just going to get right into it. Number five, top films about music. Little Shop, Little Shop of Horrors. You put Steve Martin and Rick Moranis in a movie, adapted from a Broadway play. If you haven't seen it, then I don't know what to tell you. It's called Little Shop of Horrors. It's about a plant that needs to eat people and needs to be fed. It's totally insane. The music is incredible. The songs are memorable. Little Shop of Horrors. Now, number four is also a Broadway play. It's the last one that was a Broadway play, at least started as a Broadway play. Back when I was 10 years old in 1978, a movie with John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John came out called Grease. Not Grease 2 with Michelle Pfeiffer. Grease 1 with Olivia Newton-John, John Travolta, Jeff Conway, Stockard Channing, who played Jed Bartlett's wife, the first lady on West Wing, among other things that she's done. It's called Grease. Grease is the word, is the word. Frankie Valli, the song. I saw that movie. That's the first movie. It's the most special movie to me because it's the first movie I ever saw back to back. I went to the theater first day with a friend, second day with my aunt, back to back when that movie came out. Grease. Number three, a movie that I've asked Mike Ryan to watch, and I don't know whether he's watched the music in this movie, the soundtrack with Adam Levine from Maroon 5, it's called Begin Again. It stars Mark Ruffalo and Kira Knightley. I listen to that soundtrack when I run. I listen to it when I drive. I listen to it. It's part of every... Here's the sign of a good soundtrack, Coca. If it can be on my sleep playlist, my car playlist, my run playlist, then what else is there? And the songs from this soundtrack are... It's called Begin Again. That was number three. Number two, Moulin Rouge. It's now a Broadway musical, by the way, but the movie directed by Baz Luhrmann with Nicole Kidman and Ewan McGregor. I don't care what your view is of Nicole Kidman or Ewan McGregor. John Luigi's, how do you pronounce that, Coca? Help. John Leguizamo. Leguizamo. Come on, I know how to pronounce John. Could you talk louder? Okay, I can't hear you. Leguizamo. Okay. He plays Toulouse-Lautrec. He did that entire movie on his knees. It's got Jim Broadbent in it. Take a look at that soundtrack. Take a look at that movie. But now I've set up to give you a review of my number one movie about music. 
this movie, where is it in my top 100, Coca? I got to redo my top 100, which I'm going to do. But I have a feeling that it's in my top 10, and it should be at least. It's called Almost Famous by Cameron Crowe. Almost Famous is the story about a band called Stillwater. It stars Billy Crudup, and it's, oh, God, I'm having a moment here. What's the name of the guy from Chasing Amy who also stars in, in Almost Famous? This is impossible. I will not let this show go to air without saying his name. Please check it out. Go to IMDb. Go wherever you want. Uh, he's uh, he uh, not Patrick Fugit. He's in the movie. Not Kate Hudson. She's in the movie. Anyway, by the way, Jimmy Fallon, Jason Lee. Yes, thank you, Coca. Jason Lee is brilliant and almost famous trying to figure out as the lead guitar player why he is in the background of an album cover shot. Did I ever tell you, Coca, the story? By the way, it's number six in my top 100. Thank you. Did I ever tell you the story of Not Ready for Primetime, Coca, the play that I was in with the poster? I told that story somewhere. I don't remember where I told it, but I got a good one for you. So Moulin Rouge is number seven and Almost Famous is number six. So it's funny. I did not look at my top 100 when I made this list, but it goes to show you that it actually was right on. I think Begin Again may be in my top 100 also currently, and it's going to stay there for sure. Number 92. Thank you. All right. Let me give you a quick story about Almost Famous that is the best part. Well, there's so many. I don't want to speak in hyperbole. It is a phenomenal part of Almost Famous. So Jimmy Fallon comes in and wants to become their manager. And he wants to take the band to the next level. And the manager they've had is the manager they had when before they hit it big. It reminds me often of agents for players who have been with those players since high school, even though they're not supposed to be their advisors, and then even in grade school and whatever. And then they're about to make big bucks and then they switch to Boris, right? Jimmy Fallon played the Boris character who comes in and says, hey, you've been long enough with your friend. It's time to get into the big leagues. So they're releasing a album and the cover art for the album gets given to the band. And the cover art has the lead singer, Billy Crudup, and then the other four members of the band are sort of in the background. They're sort of a little blurry. You can't see them as well. And it creates a major problem. Billy Crudup reads the room and he says, listen, forget that cover. I didn't ask for that. We're going to redo the cover. No problem. When I was in a play, not ready for prime time, I was with professional actors and I was the president of a baseball team. And I tried out for the play and I got the part of Lorne Michaels in this play called not ready for prime time, which by the way, is reopening without me in Miami. I think in March. This could end up on Broadway. It's that good a play written by Eric Rodriguez and uh, Char Charlie, his, his writing partner also is involved. They've got actual real producers doing, not that it wasn't real when I did it, but it's way, it's way more real. Do I think I'll get the part of Lorne Michaels again? I don't know, but I'm going to try out. But I was the president of the Marlins and I was a name back then. And the other actors were real actors, really good, professional, getting paid. We all got paid, but I wanted it to be an ensemble piece because not ready for prime time, Saturday Night Live. It's based on the start of Saturday Night Live. That is an ensemble show, right? So all of a sudden, there is a piece of art that comes from the theater and they're gonna start promoting Not Ready for Prime Time to sell tickets. And they had me as Lorne Michaels, played by David Sampson, in a very prominent role, in prominent font. 
and I saw it, and I immediately said, because I could see the room was uncomfortable, and I could see that there was a situation because I was a newbie. I wasn't a professional actor, though some would argue I always have acted for a living ever since I was six years old, maybe even earlier. But I said, listen, no problem. I want my name in the same font. Doesn't need to be first. I want the picture just to have me because I'm Lorne Michaels. I'm the producer of the show. So I'll be in front. I'm also the shortest one. And then the cast can be behind me. But I want everyone to be listed equally because I do not need top billing. Do you know how often billing is an issue? That's why often movies will say starring in alphabetical order. Do you know why that actually happens? because it's impossible for the producers to figure out how to list the names of the stars in what order, because certain stars need to be first. Certain stars don't deserve to be first, but they won't do the movie if they're not first. Other stars should be first, but they don't want to be first, don't need to be first. So often you'll do alphabetical. Certain stars who can't be first will get an and when you watch movies starring and Sam Elliott. That's sort of a position when you're really, really cool and that people are sort of surprised you're in the movie or really wondering, should you be in that movie? Is that movie a big enough budget? Or is it a big budget movie, but it's a pretty small part, so it can't be the lead. You can't be on top of the, what's, what's the word for a coca? They call it uh, above the lights is what it used to be called, meaning above the title. Like in a movie theater when you used to be, right? It's not that way anymore. But in movie theaters, they would have the name of the movie and then the stars would be above it. So is your name above the title? So that's how movie credits are right now, right? You've got starring Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible. So the question is, did I want an and? Did I want a with? Did I want no credit at all? And I decided I wanted to be just one of the members of the cast listed as one of the actors in the play. And that's what we ended up doing. So that line in Almost Famous, that scene in Almost Famous, by definition, is worth it just like that. Sometimes I've negotiated with players and we've actually talked about, (laughs) it's pretty funny actually, we've talked about announcements and when you sign a player, what it's going to, what the announcement will look like. And I'm going to tie back to the beginning of this mailbag and tell you At the end of the day, it is so important for you to know your customer. It's so important to know where you're trying to get to, to know what your point B is, to have the information, to have the rebar, the steel that's used to build a building. You can't have a building without rebar. Information is everything. So knowing what players want, knowing what agents need, Even when you don't agree to it, sometimes you have to give it. When you're dealing with people in a movie, when you're dealing with people in your business, when you're dealing with friends, when you're deciding where to go for dinner, when you're deciding as a group of people where to go on a trip, or once you're on the trip, where you're going to go, what you're going to do, time you're going to spend, everything's a negotiation. So I close with this. You ask me to make a list of five movies. I can't. I can't give you just five musical movies. So you heard almost famous Moulin Rouge, Begin Again, Grease, and Little Shop of Horrors. But if you had given me 10, 
I would have mentioned Annette with Adam Driver, La La Land with Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling, Straight Outta Compton, how would you not mention that in your top 10? How about Love and Mercy, a little movie not well known about Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys starring John Cusack, phenomenal movie. What's the moral to this story? And it is immoral. All these top five lists, all these people who were asked, where do I fit in? How much money should I make? How do I interview people? How do I solve problems? Just be the people who do, not the people who talk. And if you do that, you will differentiate yourself far more than you ever imagined. Hey, it's just business. Thanks for listening to the mailbag. We'll do it again. It's nothing personal. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.